Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ask anyone to define the South, and there's a good chance food is going to come up. Fried chicken, barbecue, gumbo, po'boys, you name it. Food is the most immediately recognizable export of Southern culture. It's also something that unites us and may be the key to unlocking the stories and the history of the South itself. At least that's the mission behind the Southern Foodways Alliance, founded 20 years ago by John T. Edge. John T. is also the host of True South, an SEC network show that highlights the Southeast restaurants and cooks. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I'm chatting with John T. Edge about all things food. He makes some bold claims about Alabama barbecue and white sauce. He explains the historical significance of a cornbread debate. We talk about what makes a good bar, and he explains why the region's immigrants may just hold the key to the continued life of Southern cuisine. This episode may be best enjoyed over a glass of bourbon, but please drink responsibly as we dive into this week's Reckon Interview. Well, John T. Edge, thank you for coming in to the Reckon Interview. My pleasure. I think everyone in the world is at that moment where they're watching No Reservations or Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, or your show, True South, where we think to ourselves, you know, that has to be the best job in the world, just going around, eating food, and meeting people. But most people who have these shows, I think, start out as chefs and not academics. You grew up loving food. How did that result in you becoming a writer and a researcher and not a chef or a restaurateur? I think you're right about the the customary origins of these shows. They start in the kitchen, right? right? And I started as a consumer, you know, although I wouldn't have used that term when I was, you know, 10 years old and pedaling a Schwinn lemon peeler bike up from my home in Clinton, Georgia, across a four lane to a barbecue joint. But that's the way I started. I started as someone who, I grew up an only child in a really small town, like 50 person town. Maybe that's generous. I don't even know how to count the towns. Clinton, Georgia, just outside of Macon. And I've just begun to write about this now, so the, the timing in the question is, is good in that I've got a piece coming out in the next Oxford American that's kind of about my childhood and trying to figure out kind of why I quit my house, like why I left that house and rode my bike consistently across the four lane to go to this barbecue joint to claim another kind of home. Um, and there's, if you read the piece, there's some, two people die. Um, there is a, one, one of those people gets burned up in a car in front of my house. Wow. Like it's just, I didn't really think about the ways in which my childhood was buffeted by violence and cosseted by kindness in the person of my parents and many other people. But I now realize that the reason I write about restaurants in part is because I quit my house looking for another home. You know, I, I quit the space in which I grew up looking for another place to claim. And that want to claim another family, not to quit my own, but sure. to, to claim my place among others in a bar, in a restaurant, 
um, began there. And when I was little um, in Clinton, Georgia, at a place called Old Clinton Barbecue, um, where Miss Coulter, this you know, gray-haired, kindly lady with what I remember is like granny glasses on, wielded this big cleaver, um, whacking um, pork butts into really beautiful barbecue. Um, so that's where I begin. That wasn't an answer to your question, I don't think. Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute, but uh, I put a call out on Facebook that asked people, you know, I'm interviewing John T. Edge, what do they want to hear? And one of the uh, first questions we got was, why doesn't Georgia have its own style barbecue? So you talked about this barbecue restaurant. What is Georgia barbecue? Who is this person that asked this question? I'm not going to out. This is not a Georgian, (laughs) I I would imagine. You know, I mean, I think Georgia, like Alabama, um, has a multitude of styles, and that's sometimes problematic when people want to say the style of a state is X. And I think saying there's a style in a particular state is wrongheaded anyway, because there's a multitude of styles in barbecue microclimates in every state. But Alabama, I mean, white sauce is kind of our claim to fame. White sauce is a North Alabama thing. It's not, it is only recently that, that white sauce has spread outside of Decatur and adjacent cities. It's only recently that that's become an Alabama thing. I would say that the Alabama thing for a sandwich is, you know, chopped pork on a bun um, with a sweeter than North Carolina sauce dripping off of it. Like I think of like the sandwich at the Golden Root in, in Hoover. Mm-hmm. Like that sandwich to me tastes like an idealized Alabama example of what barbecue is. And I don't think about white sauce that way. White sauce is a very specific thing that only spread recently. I, I think my colleague John Archibald would very strongly agree with you about the signature Birmingham sandwich, yeah. please. Witt's Barbecue up in Decatur also has a vinegar-based sauce, I think. And so you're right, microclimates. But the, the barbecue place that you referred to as loving as a child, what yeah. kind of barbecue? I mean, it was pork. It, it was pork. It was pork butts. Um, and uh, they served Brunswick stew with it, which yeah, was an good. important part of the meal. And uh, it was chopped pork in a vinegary sauce that had ketchup in it. It was a red sauce. It wasn't a very sweet sauce, so it's closer to that kind of purist vinegar um, sauce that you might find in, in the eastern regions of North Carolina. Um, it, it looks and tastes a lot like a Piedmont, North Carolina sauce. And you can see migration patterns that might be responsible for something like that. But, you know, if you go like an hour and a half south and west of where I grew up, maybe even less, you'll come into a little region of Georgia, like in the Chattahoochee River Valley, where you see mustard show up um, in the sauces, and you wonder about ties back to South Carolina and migration patterns there. So it, it, it all changes. I think we, we've gotten to a moment where people used to say there are four styles of barbecue. There's North Carolina, you know, Kansas City. Memphis. It, yeah, that yeah. was so simplistic, and now we know better. So to get back to the original question, or, or to ask it a different way, I think, It seems like right now, you know, this kind of exploration and critical studies of food, particularly Southern food, or even, I guess, the greater Southern food diaspora with the Great Migration, is kind of having a cultural moment. But when you started the Southern Foodways Alliance 20 years ago, there, there wasn't much of a blueprint for this, right? So you're growing up in Clinton, Georgia. How is becoming a food academic even come into the realm of possibility? Like, when, when did that moment happen for you? I was living in Atlanta after a fitful run through the University of Georgia um, that did not result in a degree. <laughs> um, 
I was there in a really good time to listen to music and drink and dance um, in the early 80s. Um, yeah, that would have been a really good time. Yeah, it was a fantastic time. Um, so when I went back to school, I did so purposefully because I wanted to understand my relationship to the South. I love this place and I'm deeply angry at this place for, and both come with a host of reasons for why. Um, and so I went to, I, I, I moved to Oxford, Mississippi, um, specifically to study at the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi um, to kind of reconcile my love and anger at my region. And Early on, I went to a conference, and it was the first international Elvis Presley conference. Um, I think the title may have been the first international conference on Elvis Presley. Um, and it was co-hosted by the Center for the Study of Southern Culture. And I heard this just kind of radical take on the South that used one facet of the region to make sense of the larger region. And I heard Will Campbell, the radical Baptist preacher from South Mississippi who was the only white man president at the founding of the SCLC. He was there to help escort the kids over the Transmit Little Rock schools. He was this radical Baptist preacher who gave a talk, um, country Baptist preacher, um, who gave a talk on Elvis as redneck. And the talk was, in essence, a screed against people using redneck as an epithet when what they mean is racist, when what they mean is bigot, when what they mean is some sort of declamation of that person. And Will said redneck is a um, term to describe a working class person with, you know, who has been graced by the sun on the back of their neck and don't equate that with racist. And he ended his talk by saying, am I a redneck? You dang tootin' I am. Is my brilliant, beautiful lesbian daughter a redneck? Yeah, she is too. And so, like, he turned everything on its head for me, and I realized that by looking at some facet of the South and looking at it in a tight fashion, like in this case, he was looking at Elvis and he was looking at class, that I could apply some facet of my interest I love barbecue, yeah. um, to looking at the South. And I could use it as a way to explore racism, class difference, gender inequity, whatever the big issues that vex a region are, like hearing Will Campbell talk switched a light bulb on for me. What was your dissertation on? I wrote my dissertation on a debate in 1931 between Huey Long, who at that point was senator-elect from Louisiana, um, and um, Julian Harris, who was the son of Joel Chandler Harris, of uh, Uncle Remus interpreter. Um, at that point, Julian Harris was an editor at the Atlanta Constitution. They engaged in a debate about the relative merits of dunking or crumbling cornbread in the pot liquor. <laughs> What's so funny? I know. I mean, it's a, it's a good debate. Uh, well, it, it, it became know. a way in that moment, you know, it was a diversion yeah. from prohibition, from the depression. Um, you know, politicians oftentimes use food as a way to claim status as an everyman, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, George Bush claimed to love pork rinds. Um, but in that moment, this debate raged between Long um, and Harris, and then the Atlanta Journal-Constitution kind of fanned those flames, so people began writing in letters to the editor. Those movie reels, those movie tone reels that used to play before films, filmed those. The, you know, the New York Times um, 
sounded its approval or disapproval of each of the stances of dunking or crumbling. And I found this cache of letters at Emory University that Julian Harris had left. And they were letters, people writing in about cornbread and pot liquor as symbols of the South. And they ended up writing about all that stuff I cared about. They ended up writing about race. They ended up writing about class. They ended up writing about gender. Wow. So it gave me a way, because food is, you know, it's material culture, but it's material culture that vanishes in the moment of our consumption. So how do you make sense of what people ate? How do you make sense of how people felt about food and about themselves in the past? These letters became a portal for me. Well, and I, I ask most of my guests this, you know, what is the South to you? And I, I, I mean, I think for many people, the definition starts with food. And so what is it? I mean, I'll ask you a more pointed version of the question, what makes food Southern as opposed to Midwestern comfort food or New England style American food? You know, what is a, what is Southern food? That, that's, it's, it's, you know, those are always the hardest questions to answer, those blunt, good journalist questions. You know, they're really hard to answer. I would say that what makes food Southern are the people who have cooked it, do cook it, and will cook it. Um, I'm more interested in and compelled by the stories of the cooks who have made this food over time than I am the origin point of those ingredients. Um, so I'm interested in the story of the working class cooks, um, the working class farmers who have sustained this place. So it is that interplay of rich and poor, of black and white, and that kind of fitful dance between them. That's what makes Southern food. I don't think it is technique. It's not, you know, food that is deep fried. It's not food that's smoked. Um, it's food that results of this fitful marriage of black and white, of rich and poor. And there's a unique and, and tragic history to this place. And that informs this food. And that's what makes it distinctive. And that's not an easy answer. No, it's not it's, a soundbite answer. Well, and, you know, I, I recently went to the National Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C. And it's they have this really, I don't know if you've been, but they have this great part at the beginning of the museum where you kind of are walking in and you see on, you know, I think it's on the left-hand side of the wall is the impact of the slave trade on Africa. And on the right side of the wall is the impact of the slave trade on Europe. But then, you know, as you walk further and further and further, you see that they were growing rice in low country because the Africans brought it over and had the techniques and were actually training, you know, the Europeans on, they brought, on the... They brought yeah. the expertise as well as the muscle. Right. right. And so, you know, that sort of mishmash of food cultures, I think, my understanding is kind of what led to a lot of this Southern food. But recently, you've been looking at kind of the, the next wave of that and the impact of, I don't want to say new immigrants, because, you know, a lot of this has been happening since the early 1900s, but uh, the not the black and traditional um, Anglo-Saxon and Irish influences, but, you know, Greeks in Birmingham or uh, Vietnamese in Houston. And I, and I think that you said that the Southern food tradition is, is going to be carried on because of those immigrants. And could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean... It from its beginning, the Southern Foodways Alliance has focused on the stories of working class folk, um, not on chefs. Um, if you scroll through the films we've made, the oral histories we've done, the stories we've told, they've very rarely been of chefs. We believe there is a kind of debt of pleasure to be paid down to working class cooks who came before us. Um, so that's been our drive from the beginning is telling those stories of working class folks. And that's what compels me to do the work I do, is that 
I think that the next generation of Southern tradition bearers are already among us. They're the men and women from El Salvador or from Mexico who stand on the line um, in meeting threes now um, alongside people of African-American descent or, or Western European descent. They're already doing the work of Southern food. Um, when I was researching my book, The Potlicker Paper, somebody told me a story about how in North Carolina, where, Bo where, where Bojangles is so prevalent, um, based in North Carolina, that many people call, the cool kids call Bojangles Bohangales, um, because that's where the ladder trucks full of Mexican-American workers go eat breakfast. And when you flip that to the other side, there have been a lot of publicity recently about the women who win the baking contest for Bojangles or Hardee's, both of which have done over time, like, who's our best baker? These are Latina women. So if you look closely and clearly at the South and you look at, you know, who's in the ladder trucks doing the work to build the South today, who's stepping out of the ladder trucks and the Bojangles to eat the biscuits, you know, to eat the ham biscuits, if you look at who's rolling out those biscuits in the modern South, um, if you look clearly and closely, you see that immigrants, recent immigrants or second and third generation Mexican-Americans have stepped into those roles. They are the sustainers of and carriers of those traditions. It's hard to see that sometimes, but if you pull the blinders off. And down on the coastal regions, I mean, it's East Asians kind of doing some of the shrimping yeah. and things like that. My favorite way to eat crawfish now is Vietnamese style crawfish, which you see all over um, Houston, um, on the Texas Gulf Coast, um, Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, they're Vietnamese owned Cajun themed crawfish restaurants. And those are becoming more predominant than a crawfish boil spot like you might have known growing up. And this is, you know, the culture, I have to remind myself and remind others, is a process, not a product. Like Southern culture isn't this thing we made. Right. Southern culture is this thing we continue to make and remake. And uh, many things, you know. It is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, low country is very different from Deep South, right. very different from uh, Louisiana. Um, in an episode of True South, I think it was the Nashville episode, uh, to get back to the idea of Southern food kind of being rooted in working class ethic, you talked about, uh, you know, the traditional meat and three was to serve blue collar workers. Right. And to replicate a farm meal, right. basically. And some of the um, health problems in the South might be traced back to the fact that we're eat, we're still eating that meal without doing kind of the the calorie burn that goes with it. We're hardwired for that. We talked a little bit before we turned the mics on. You said that you're. Uh, I don't want to out you, but you said your doctor told you you need to lose weight. Yeah. Can you eat traditional Southern food and eat healthy, or is that a different kind of game? I think you can eat traditional Southern food and eat healthy. You know, my diet is abnormal because I'll eat four times in a day or five times in a day when I'm researching. Um, you know, here we are having this conversation in July. You know, when Pepper Place Market on a Saturday is booming, with the, when the State Farmers Market out um, north of town is just rich with the bounty of the South. Think about the meat and three. It's one meat and three vegetables. It's a 
pretty balanced meal if you don't allow Paula Dean to define what a meat and three is. Right. Um, so if you're eating from this place and if you are, you know, eating a modern meat and three that is based on three vegetables and just one meat, like, I think that is very possible. I think it's very sustainable for a human. Um, just don't eat like me and eat five of those in a day, um, and you're okay. And don't make your vegetables all fried or macaroni right. and cheese. And, 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 you know, that reflects, you know, there was a time in our history when poverty-engendered creativity meant that meat was a flavoring, not the thing at the center of the plate. So there's a great um, scene in a Zora Neale Hurston novel wherein you see the character tie a string around a ham hock, drop it in pot of greens, and then after you, after you get enough of the flavor out of that ham hock, pull it out with a string, you know, which to me tells me everything we didn't know, that, you know, these foods um, that we think of as dependent upon pork, you know, had a flavoring of pork, not chunks of pork floating on a skein of grease atop a pot. And that, to me, I, I think Paula Dean's probably too easy to pick on here, but I do think that this kind of supersizing of Southernness and saying it's only Southern if we do this essentializes a story, obscures the real food, and gets us fat. You talked a little bit in, in your book, Potlicker Papers, about the origin of a lot of these Southern fast food chains. KFC, Bojangles, um, Captain D's, Long John Silver. It seems like in the South and elsewhere, we're now moving away from fast food and more of an interest in farm-to-table style food. And I, I imagine part of that is traced back to people being interested in food ways and where your food yeah. comes from and things like that. Why, why does it matter? I mean, before I read your book, I didn't really think about how the food got to my plate or how it got to the grocery store. Why should we care? Um, I'll answer that. I, I want to say one thing about the fast food thing, which I think is fascinating and something I'm seeing traveling south, is um, those you know, fast food biscuits chain. We talked a little bit about Bojangles. Um, Hardee's was really the first to the market. I noticed um, driving through North Carolina recently, I stopped at Biscuitville, and I'm, I really like Biscuitville. They do a great job. And they labeled everything they were getting in the source it came from. And like their ham was coming from North Carolina. The grain for the for the biscuits was coming from North Carolina. Um, the, the chicken was coming from Georgia. Like they were marrying farm to table ideas and fast food. And I think that's a future for yeah. the South. You know, whether it's fast casual or whether it's fast food, in a moment when labor costs are so high, um, and in some cases not high enough, um, when the work of Southern food is complex um, and systems can be developed to deliver them, I'm not, you know, if people do it right, I ain't scared of a fast food biscuit. I ain't scared of a drive through no, biscuit. I love a good fast food a, biscuit. Right. So I wanted to say that first. But then back to your question. Sure. Say it again <laughs> now that I went on my riff. Well, actually, before we go back to that, I want to uh, share a theory of a coworker of mine, which is that um, restaurants like Waffle House, mm -hmm. they're, they're better the further you get away from a city. Because if you're in a small town, you know, the best chef is going to wind up at the Waffle House, where if you're in a big city, they might wind up at one of Frank Stitt's joints or something yeah. like that. But I think the question before that was, um, 
I just like any world in which we discuss Waffle House theory. I love because Waffle I, House. Because I, I admire Waffle House. Um, I don't go as far as, far as Fob James went. Sure. But, you know, um, but I admire Waffle House, and I, I get good food there. There's now a campaign in part led by the mayor of Oxford to get a Waffle House in Oxford because we don't have one. We have a Huddle House, and everybody knows that's lesser. We uh, we got a Waffle House on the Strip in Tuscaloosa, and it, it it's particularly after a late night at the bars, it's a game changer yeah. to be able to yeah. go straight to Waffle but House. But you have a question. Uh, my question <laughs> is, why should we care where our food comes from? Why does it matter how it got to my plate? Why does it matter you know, how it got to the grocery store? If it's, if it's cheaper for me to get it at Walmart, why should I get it at the farmer's market? This is something that my wife and I talked to our son about. He's about to go off to college this fall, and we try to talk to him about that his spending decisions in restaurants and grocery stores are economic decisions that have political impact. You are giving people money to do something with your money, and you are, by way of spending money with them, giving them a vote of confidence in what it is they do. Um, And that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is that in this American moment, I think we are expressing our beliefs, our morals, and the like by way of the food decisions we make. You know, if a previous generation like declared who they were by way of the rock and roll band they followed or the blues and soul band they followed um, and wore those t-shirts or whatever it may be, this generation, and, and I would include really, you know, kids in their teens through people in their 40s and 50s, have embraced food as this barometer of belief. And if that's the case, if it's also the case that food has become a means of entertainment. You know, it used to be you'd go see a, you'd go eat dinner and then go see a movie. Now you just go eat dinner. Mm-hmm. And dinner has become the entertainment. Our relationship to food has become defining in America. Um, I would argue it always has been, but we just didn't pay attention. But in this moment, when food has become so much of a part of the fabric of identity in America, in a city like Birmingham, you know, wherein I think one of the best marketing efforts the city has is come to Birmingham to eat because it's really good um, across all the strata, um, at the lower end, at the higher end, and everything in between. So if all those things are, the, are true, then there's a lot of money at stake, and we need to pay attention to where that money goes and why. Um, and we also need to – I hate telling people what they need to do because I hate when people tell me what I need to do. I would like to see us – Yeah, exactly. I would like to see us – pay better attention to the people who put the food on our tables, um, to understand their lives, to understand what a stressful world that is and what hard work that requires. Um, And in this moment, if we're going to celebrate food, we're going to celebrate Birmingham as a citadel of food, we're going to celebrate the South as a place um, where people come to eat, and one of the reasons they tour the South is to eat, then then we are, it is, it is advised for us to pay attention to the food system, um, how people are treated, how people are compensated, what lives they live. That's a responsibility in this moment. Well, and it seems like, I guess there's another component to this that, I mean, the story of the, of the dish itself, the recipe itself, there were a lot of Southern foods that I wasn't really that interested in that I started eating, I guess, as a result of, of reading about it, tomato mm-hmm. um, cheese sandwiches or right. things like that, which I now realize are delicious that I had just written off. But, you know, there's kind of that tension between, at least I think as a Southerner, you know, they say on TV and then online and, and all the books out there that, you know, we need to stop eating meat and things right. like that. Yeah. But then at the 
on the other end of that, that is like, well, eating barbecue kind of connects us to our southern ancestors and eating, you know, fish connects us to our to our coast. Do you have a recipe for how you uh, navigate that? I mean, do you eat meat every meal? Do you eat? I, I don't, you know, I don't think of food as having a deleterious effect upon my health or myself. Um, I what about to, the environment, I guess, is the question. Well, the environment's a, another question. You know, if you think about the amount of water, which is one of the statistics touted, that it takes to raise the cow to get you a pound of ground beef, I think there are reasons to consider a diet lower in meat. And it's the way I like to eat. Um, you know, I mentioned this meat in three. Like a lot of times during the summer, I get a three. Um, and I get some hot water cornbread and some chow chow on the side, perhaps, and I'm happy. I think there are a lot of issues to puzzle through in this moment. And the effect upon climate um, and the, the catalytic effect upon the environment in a negative sense that is driven by big ag, bad ag, and the like um, is something to consider. And there's a, you know, there are great examples of people like Will Harris and Jenny Harris at White Oak Pastures in South Georgia who are defining new ways to raise protein. Um, I think they farm, they raise 10 different species on that land in Southwest Georgia um, that don't have a negative effect upon the environment, that have neutral effect and are able to feed people. So I don't want to dismiss meat. Um, I find that living in the South, especially in the height of the summer, I want squash, I want okra, I want green beans, I want, you know, I want peas, I want zipper peas, mm -hmm. I want every kind of pea I can get. Right. So those run hand in hand. Smarter folks figuring out new ways to bring protein to my plate and awareness that my body functions a little bit better when I eat more vegetables. All right, so we've had our meal. Coming up after the break, we'll move on to the drinks, and John T. Edge will tell us whether or not the hangovers are still worth it. Who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them? At the end of the day, I, I would much rather go to the national championship and lose than go to any other bowl game. The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Just because I'll dig a ditch from 8 to 5 and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. Well, we've talked about food, so let's move on to the other part of the meal and move on to drink. Okay, good. Uh, you wrote I'm about to go to the. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. You wrote a piece recently in Oxford American about the Atomic Lounge here in Birmingham. It was a gorgeous piece of writing. Thank talks you. about the efforts that good bartenders and owners go into creating a great bar experience. But you also kind of offer this little window into your own mind, where you ask yourself, you know, why you still drink at this stage in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, so why are hangovers worth it to you now? <laughs> <laughs> I, I get less now. Oh, that's good. Um, you know, and I, I think I'm inclined more towards my wife and I were talking about this last night over the 
at the table with some friends that um, we're more inclined when we're on vacation now to have wine with lunch, like a bottle of wine with lunch and maybe a drink in the afternoon instead of day drinking all day or or going out and staying up until two in the morning. Like I like what I do when I'm not drinking too much to screw up my day the next day. Yeah. Um, but being in a bar still being is in a, a bar is still joy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And and you know, it's it's kind of like the way I treat meat. Like I want to drink better drinks and fewer of them um, than I did before. Um, but there's still that moment after you know you round the corner from three drinks to four and maybe headed towards five of abandon, um, of joyful release, yeah. of camaraderie of all those things that alcohol promises. Where you um, start singing and skipping. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to skip, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, me too. I love to skip. Um, I, I have a memory just flashed in my head of skipping down to Cater Street in New Orleans with friends like 15 years ago, just yeah. joyful. Yeah. So, yeah, I want that. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have those privileges taken away from me, you know. Um, yeah. I don't want to like turn the corner and be 60 and go, you know, I think I should probably quit drinking altogether. Right. Um, yeah. I have a responsibility to my family, to my body, to my you know, friends, to a whole bunch of other people. But boy, like when I leave this studio, I will pick up my wife and we're going straight to the Atomic. And, you know, that place, I think, fulfills the promise of a bar in the way Few people even understand what the promise of a bar can be, and very few people deliver, which is camaraderie, abandon, joy. You can be someone else for an hour. Um, and Literally there, yeah, yeah you can be exactly. something else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I just really appreciate that. I'm trying to write about that larger sense of what we want out of bars and restaurants. You know, And I talked about being a boy and crossing the highway to go eat barbecue. Like, what did I want out of that? What do I want to... What do I want out of the atomic now? And those two things are connected. And I think in this moment when food and drink are really important in the American experience, we're all attracted to bars and restaurants. Not we're all. Many of us are attracted to bars and restaurants. But we're not really puzzling through why. And I'm trying to puzzle through why. Have you figured it out? No, For but you? I, I hope I hope my publisher gives me money to figure that out. I, mean, I that's, hope that too. That's yeah, we the, all need to know. Yeah, I mean, but we we do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's an unexamined part of it. Like, what are our motivations? Why is it that America has turned toward bars and restaurants? And why are even some of the arguments about identity and um, and ownership of the South? Why are they now situated in bars and restaurants? Why is this place become, why have those places become fulcrums for that conversation too? It's fascinating and I want to figure it out. And I think the Atomic is one place to start to figure it out. When we lived in San Francisco, you know, we would seek out Southern restaurants or barbecue restaurants that did Southern style barbecue. And Occasionally you stumble on one where they, they get it right, and it's probably because somebody either moved out there or because somebody's or because they were really good there. students. Or because they were good. Yeah. 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 Like I don't I don't think that I don't think you have to be southern to cook southern food. No. I, I, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not Italian, but I, I like good Italian food. Yeah. In Oxford, Mississippi, you've got this community there that I think you know, it it almost outkicks its coverage in terms of concentration of mines and oh yeah, Mississippi. It's why know. we live there. I mean, you know, it's the people, the 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 physical environment of Oxford is beautiful. It's a courthouse square center town, but what makes that town are the 
people who live there, the artists, the musicians, the writers, people who kick ass every day. So what, what brought you all to this place? I mean, other than the university and what keeps you there as opposed to Athens or Auburn or Tuscaloosa? Um, I, my wife was born in Oxford. So Blair was born in Oxford. She moved away when she was three. Her father took a job as, as Dean of Arts and Sciences at Auburn. And so Blair grew up in Auburn. But then she moved back to Oxford after um, getting an MFA at Michigan. She moved back to Oxford at about the same time I moved there. And so we met there. Um, we made a life in Oxford. We made a boy in Oxford. So it's home. I mean, it, as much as the place I grew up, more than the place I grew up, which is Georgia, Oxford's home. We raised our child there. I've lived in Oxford longer than I've lived anywhere in my life. Um, I claim the place. Mm -hmm. And and I think so many people in our friend orbit claim Oxford both for the promise of that city and that artistic community and the peril of Mississippi. You know, um, we have leadership at present in our state that is not acting in the best interest of its citizens. We have, um, we suffer from divisive politics that pull black and white apart and poor and rich apart. And yet I don't want to say that we stay in Oxford to fight the power. No, of course not. We stay in Oxford because my friend Wright Thompson, with whom I make um, True South, lives eight blocks from me. We stay in Oxford because Tommy Franklin and Beth Ann Finley, novelists, writers, poets, um, their daughter and our son grew up together. And Tommy, we celebrated his birthday two weeks ago in a big group of writers and creative folk. Like, that place enriches us, and I hope we contribute to it in a small way. Like, that's life. That's, that's to be a part of a group that recognizes your value and to contribute to that group, that's, that's all it is. You know, I mean, that's all I want. Um, and I want to be stimulated. I want to be challenged. I want to find joy every day. And I know that sounds sappy, and I really don't care. No, that's <laughs> a good answer. Southern Foodways Alliance is it's in its 20th year. What have you learned in your 20 years of running? I mean, you've, you've launched podcasts, you've launched publications, both of which are called Gravy, which right. is a great Southern name. Um, and I, I think at one point you were involved with a publication called Reckon as well, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Um, not our publication. And then obviously you have True South. You've written a number of books. Uh, you do a lot. But what have, what have you, what's your takeaway for after 20 years in the business? 20 years, what's my takeaway? Wow. Um, huh. I just came back into town in Birmingham today. I got to see you, but you weren't my—forgive me—you weren't my my drive to I come back. Yeah. Um, well, I'm being honest. No, I, don't, I understand. <laughs> um, I came back here because my colleague Anne-Marie Anderson, who's our oral historian, had done a series of oral histories with the kitchen crew, wait staff, the back of the house, in front of the house folks at Highlands Bar and Grill. Um, the Southern Foodways Alliance was founded at a meeting on July 22nd of 1999 here in Birmingham. And that night, 34 of the 50 founders were there for that initial meeting, and we convened at Highlands. And um, Frank and Partistit hosted us. Frank cooked Destin Grouper and served Jubilee watermelons. We had this feast. And it set us on a path like that that still matters today. So when my colleague Anne Marie finished the oral histories, she usually returns them to the folks she interviews. So you get a transcript, you get a photograph, and she was going to mail them. And I was like, no, I'm, I want to go to Highlands. I want to deliver them. So I've come here to deliver those. 
the thing I've realized, and I, I promise I'm going to answer your question, um, is that the most important work we do is documenting the lives of folks who are outside the view of the camera. You know, we don't need to do an oral history of Frank. Um, we do need to do an oral history of Chris Connor, the bartender at Highlands, who's been behind the stick um, for the longest time and has shepherded that restaurant through many changes and has been um, kind of steward of the population there. We do need to do an oral history of Goran Avery. Who is that? Um, of Red Dog, okay. the way you know him. Yeah, okay. so yeah. you nodded yeah. as soon as I said Red Dog. The, the waiter who began at Highlands the day Highlands opened um, and still remains there. Um, so what I've recognized is that telling stories about the South that are grounded in working class folk of the South, that are grounded in people who do not get the attention, do not get the TV time, do not get even the newspaper time. 20 years from now, I hope that will reverberate like a Works Progress Administration effort from the 1930s in America. Like, we've now compiled over a thousand oral histories and 120 plus films, all without the want to celebrate our work, but with the intent to celebrate the lives of those people. And what I've learned over 20 years is that matters. And, and like, it's the highest calling of what I get to do. Is there one of those stories that stands out as a favorite or as particularly surprising or emblematic of, of the work? What's the first one that comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind is that, that my son and I took a road trip um, last weekend, and we beelined for Brownsville, Tennessee, where Helen Turner is the pitmaster at her own place called Helen's Barbecue. My colleague Joe York made a film about her five years ago. Three years before that, Joe had done an oral history with her. A couple of years ago, so shifting back and forth in time, my colleague Ryan Fertel did another oral history project about Helen. Um, she's one of the few female pitmasters in the South. Um, if you go to that barbecue restaurant, um, behind the little hutch of a building is a screen room, and there are two barely controlled fires in the back of that screen room. One is where she burns down coals, and the other is where she cooks the pork. Um, Helen Turner steps into that smoke six days a week. Um, you can see the effect on her eyes. Um, when I saw her, she was still recovering from Bell's palsy, which, you know, if you know Bell's palsy, it can be brought on by stress. Like, this is a woman who gives her life, her heart, her body to barbecue. And um, that barbecue is amazing. It's my son's favorite barbecue, and he's a, he's, a, he's a good eater with a good palate. But he, like me, is as much attracted to Helen um, as he is to barbecue. Because in that restaurant, he is able to apprehend her labor. And he may not talk about it this way. I think he probably would. He's able to see what she puts into that. And she, he's able to see the people who congregate in that restaurant and see how much Helen matters and see in that moment why food matters and what the power of food is and what the power of a place like Helen's and a person like Helen is. And that's what we attempt every day, you know, and the notion that Helen's story, um, there are two oral histories in a film that tell her story, that matters. And I hope that our work serves as a testament to her work 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 60 years from now. This sort of gets back to that, to the question we started with, which is... Which uh, I didn't answer, yeah. yeah well, I'm, I'm going to keep asking it until you answer it. Is the, I'll try to. I just got uh, yeah, lost. Yeah. No, I, I think this gets back to it. I mean, 
you know, you watch Anthony Bourdain, who, you know, um, who actually interviewed you in Mississippi, but you, you watch uh, one of his shows, um, or True South, you, in the um, Shreveport episode, you have this Chinese restaurant that's in built into this hotel that can only be described as gross. Like the, the hotel. The hotel. The restaurant. Yeah, the restaurant. Yeah, the restaurant oh, the, is this, you walk like, into the restaurant, beautiful, ornate, yeah. fabulous wine bar. Mm-hmm. How do you find these places? I mean, how, how many bad restaurants do you go to before you oh. find the good one? <laughs> A lot. I mean, you know, the, the, the... How do you find Helen? I mean, the, the lesson is always stop. If your curiosity... You know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm an obsessive. It is my job to find great places. And find's probably the wrong word. It's, you know, to, it's, they've always been there. Yeah. Um, I just happen to stumble upon them. Um, so it's my job to bumble and stumble toward great food and even more so great people. Like, so if, if that's my job, then I'm not doing a very good job if I don't find these places. You know, friends tell me, you know, one of the great things about living in Oxford, like I'll be crossing the street and somebody will stop me in the middle of the street and go, I went to this place or I heard about this place and you should know it. Um, I think also after a while you learn to see, hopefully, some things other people don't see. Like Lucky Palace is a great example. Like, you know, that restaurant run by Quan Lim a man who I've come, become friends with, great friends with, since we first met and since I, I wrote a Garden and Gun piece about it first and then came True South. And then I've gone back to see Lim three times since because I like Lim and because he's ill and I'm worried about him too. But, you know, to see that restaurant in that broken down Bossier Inn and Suites motel by the side of the interstate and then to walk in and to see this beautiful dining room and this amazing wine cellar. It's my responsibility to write about it in a way that's not sensationalist, um, that does not call it a joint or a dive, um, that does not demean it and does not, does not exoticize it, but it just looks clearly and cleanly at it. And that's what our TV show tried to do. That's what I try to do with my writing. So there's a lot of in writing about Southern food, and especially writing about working class places, sometimes in um, funky environments, that is insulting and focuses on the physical environment and doesn't allow you to see it. Instead, use terms that declaim it and um, dismiss it, and in turn dismiss the people. So it's my responsibility to see, perhaps, to try to see what other people don't see, um, and to tell a story of the South that doesn't get told as often. And it's my job to look closely and clearly and try to get out of my get out of the way of my own prejudices and biases. It's like the South is a big workshop. Like travel it, look at it, listen to people, and you know, hopefully you're transformed by the people you meet. Hopefully you're transformed by the stories you tell, and hopefully you get out of your own way and and discover something in your own backyard. I mean, you describe it as being your job and your responsibility. I mean, in some ways, you're calling. Yeah. At what point did you realize that's, you know, what you needed to do, what you wanted to do? Why why you, John T. Edge, you know, white 
man from right. Clinton, Georgia, why, why is this your role to play in the South today? I can answer that two ways. I mean, the, the reason I realized this is the thing I wanted to do is I fell in love with my own byline. I mean, I, I'm serious. Yeah, no, like, you know, a, I mean, that's yeah. real, yeah, man. It's real. Yeah. I remember the first time I got published in the Oxford American, I wrote a piece about working a lucky dog cart in New Orleans for three nights leading up to New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. It was a damn good idea. It, I learned how to write. Yeah. John Jeremiah Sullivan, a really fine writer, was my editor of the Oxford American. Like, I learned through that process writing for that magazine how to write. So that's one answer. The other thing is it comes back to my childhood and my relationship to the South. I deeply love this place and its people. I'm also deeply angry. What are you angry about? I'm angry about the ways our leadership pull this place apart, pick this place apart, pit poor against rich, pit white against black, pit women against legislators, pit all of us against legislators in my state and yours and many others. I want for the beloved community ideal that John Lewis and so many others espoused in the 1960s, I want for a South that's not riven. I want, I want a better South. I want to be an agent of change to make a better South. I want our son to inherit a more harmonious South. Um, and food's just one way to do it. It's a good answer. Over the course of this conversation, I only mentioned one colleague who, with whom I work at the Southern Foodways Alliance, and that's Anne-Marie Anderson. But, you know, we're a office of eight, um, and uh, I'm the only boy in the office. Um, I work with a bunch of fierce women, and uh, from Ava Lowry, who's a native of Alex City, Alabama, to Mary Beth Laster, who grew up um, not far from me in Georgia, and, and a range of smart folks who share that same idea that, that the South is a project, and we're all working on that project together. And, you know, here I am talking to you on this podcast. Um, I reflect on what I said about the SFA doing a good job of telling the stories of other people, of people who don't get their due. And I feel like my colleagues back in our office don't get their due. As I look forward to the next five years, 10 years, 20 years of what we do, I'd love for them to be on the other end of this mic instead of me. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll bring them in. Good. Uh, I think we will leave it at that. That Uh, sounds good. Thank you so much, John T. Thank you, John. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks again to John T. Edge. You can catch Season 2 of True South beginning September 1st on the SEC Network. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, with additional edits by Reckon Radio producer Alexander Ritchie. Our show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records, and it was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. If you like our show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. If you leave a question or a comment in your review, we may read it on an upcoming episode of the show. If you want more Reckon, follow us on Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Plus, go to al.com slash reckon to sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date on all of the news from Alabama and around the South. And thanks, as always, for reckoning with us.
Pimento cheese. Mm-hmm. Why is it not just called cheese salad? And it, it's just like chicken salad, just like potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> we need the hard-hitting Oxford American I, I, piece I, I, on why it's not cheese salad. I, I, I welcome that coverage from Wreck. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this.